Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, between 1914 and 1918, a young Australian nation sent 414,000 who voluntarily enlisted to serve, fight and die. Almost 330,000 were sent overseas to face the horrors of modern industrialised war. And it was the first time, we talk about the technology, but it was the first time those technologies had been employed and the horrors that they created. By 1918, almost 62,000 Australians lay dead amongst the blood and mud and destruction in the trenches of Europe, the sands of the Sinai and Palestine and Syria. The Great War would be the first major undertaking by our newly federated nation, one that would forever change us and change our place in the world. And today is the day we mark the centenary of the end of that First World War, the armistice being declared at 11 o'clock. Well, the director of the Australian War Memorial, Dr Brendan Nelson, says the individual sacrifice of these men and women and those who love them, their devotion and duty to country, is what gave us what we have and made us who we are. Well, Brendan Nelson, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much, Stephen. Brendan, it's extraordinary to think back to those days. You inevitably wonder whether you could do it yourself. And surrounded by the gallantry and bravery of so many acts and indeed the immense tragedy and almost senseless futility at the same time every day, as you are as the director of the War Memorial, how do you reconcile all of that? Well, it's it's an emotional experience. I mean, once you get past staffing and budgets, uh, there's <laughs> immense diversity in things that happen here and the things that our magnificent staff and volunteers deliver for the nation. But there's also immense amount of emotion that's revealed. And in the first year that I was in the job, uh, in fact, within a few months, I realised that there was an immense amount of emotion being revealed by visitors, not just along the Roll of Honour, but in the galleries. And I'm patron of Lifeline, and I put all of the staff through the accidental counselling program that Lifeline provides to make sure that they were equipped to deal with this sort of emotional release. Mm. I also made a decision, amongst others, thinking about how to get our story to an international audience of then successfully inviting Foxtel to bring the History Channel in and Neil Oliver, the Scottish archaeologist and historian who came and went for 16 months, uh, said to me at the end of 2013, he said, Brendan, I've done a lot of these, but this is the most emotional project I've ever done. He said, but there's something troubling me about it. He said, "I, I don't think it's about war. And I said to him, Neil, I've been here a year and I've reached the conclusion that it's not actually about war, that the paradox is that it's about love and friendship, Hmm. love for friends and between friends, love of family, love of our country, and honouring men and women, the good and the bad and the great and the small, whose lives have been devoted not to themselves, but to us in their last moments to one another. Hmm. And and therein is what it's about. And consistent with the ethos, uh, I know of you personally and certainly your listeners, is The ultimate takeaway message here is that a life of value is one spent in the service of others, no matter what the cost to yourself. Yes, yes. As you're right, it's the core of the gospel message, Brendan. It is indeed. And one of the things that I realise is that 
young people that are looking for and finding meaning in what it means to be an Australian look beyond the madness of many of the wars in which we've been engaged to the qualities they see and they find in these young women that have gone to do it hmm. and fundamental qualities that underwrite the major faiths, of course. Yeah, I know that you, you do a lot of work with young people. You've been in schools, even just this week you've been in schools, and um, and you look at these kids who are very remote, most of them, from the experience of any kind of conflict, unless, of course, they know members of the serving Defence Force. And as an aside, of course, you're in Canberra, so a lot of Defence Force families in Canberra. Um, but for the most part, young people are remote from these events. But, but yet, isn't it interesting? You look around at Gallipoli every year, and it's just a sea of young people. Well, it is, and look, I'm I turned sixty a couple of months ago, and <laughs> so, but I was a member of that last generation that born into a a framework. The architecture of my life would be lived within God, King, and Country, <laughs> and for a lot of reasons, most of them not good, a lot of that is broken down. And what's happening in my observation is these young people, uh, as I say, they're looking for and finding meaning here. And it's, it, they've got a voracious appetite for it. They're not doing it because someone's told them they have to learn about all of this. And it's, in, you stand in the Hall of Memory where the unknown Australian soldiers interred and above him 15 stained glass windows, uh, each a depiction of a serviceman and nurse from the First World War. And at the bottom of each one is a single word because the founder, Charles Bean, and the first director, John Trelaw, a veteran of Gallipoli and France, ask themselves, well, what are the qualities, what are the values we saw in these men and women we regard as being essential, mm. not just for victory in battle, but for depth and breadth of character, which, of course, transcends everything else in life. Yes, I'm taken by this quote from Monash that you used, actually, in your incredibly moving speech at the National Press Club earlier this year. Uh, he wrote from Passchendaele to his wife, I'm heartily sick of the whole war business. It's horror, ghastly inefficiency impossible cruelty and misery have always appalled me. Well, this is, of course, in the context of even the Germans saying what what um, brave fighting men the Australians were and how good they were at the business of killing. I mean, it's you talk about character, and yet you've got to suspend some... You've got to suspend your humanity, haven't you, in those moments? It seems that way, and... Mm. I mean, uh, I don't understand it. it. Well, I don't profess to understand it either, mm. and when you think that um, Monash and those men that he commanded, they were all volunteers, they didn't have to be there, and uh, Monash, of course, uh, an engineer, a consummate administrator, a scholar, uh, an Anzac, uh, and there he was observing the bloodbath in the mire of Passchendaele. 38,000 casualties, Australian casualties in eight weeks and uh, 13,500 dead. Uh, we had 35 Australians killed for every metre of ground that had been taken. Oh. And you, you can understand, the Germans took it all back in three days in March the following year, but yeah. you could understand Monash writing to his wife in those terms and it reveals a lot about not just war, but the character of the man himself. And this is something that uh, a lot of people, some of whom are critics of the Australian War Memorial, which they don't understand, is that most of these men and women, um, whether it's of that generation or of this one, they don't actually like war. 
they are trained if they are required to to go and fight on our behalf and if necessary to die for us uh, they prefer not to, of course, uh, and they certainly are very, very willing to go into humanitarian disaster relief and peacekeeping. Yeah. But uh, only only people that are disordered in some way, in my view, uh, have any sort of appetite for war, either that or they're extraordinarily naive. And, of course, it was often the latter that was the case in the First World War. Yes. Yes, a grand adventure uh, was the sense of it. Even, and I was chatting with a veteran of the Second War, um, he's 96, for this program. And um, and as I was chatting with him, uh, I asked him, you know, what was that like? At 19, he turned up at Milne Bay in Papua New Guinea, the scene of some very terrible fighting. Well, he said it was an adventure. (laughs) There's a little bit of that naivety, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? Well, it's the nature of young people, and uh, when you're young, you don't know what you don't know. You you're full of uh, hormones and adrenaline. Uh, you uh, have a, a, a much more limited uh, approach to risk and the the consequences or the outcome of certain actions, whether they're things you say or things that you do, and that's a part of it. Um, I must say that uh, when I was Australia's Minister for Defence uh, toward the latter part of the Howard government, I, uh, people would often say to me, oh, Australia has been lucky in relation to casualties. And I, I'd say, yeah, well, luck is a part of it, but it's also there's something about it's the quality of leadership in today's military, Australian military, the training, the equipment provided, but there's something about the Australian character. I... I observed in these young Australian soldiers, 20, 21, 22, they saw themselves not just as soldiers, but also aid workers, diplomats and teachers. And I think in this generation of men and women who uh, do go and will go when asked by the government of the day, there there is, shall I say, less adventurism and certainly yes. less naivety than there was 100 years ago. Very much so. Our guest on Open House is Brendan Nelson. And uh, Brendan is the director of the Australian War Memorial. He was Defence Minister. He was Opposition Leader at one time. And a man with a long public service behind him. And President of the AMA um, for quite a long time. As a general practitioner, I, I love, Brendan, the sense of professional care that you bring to your role as the director of the War Memorial. Let's reflect on that for a minute because you said that the War Memorial is sometimes misunderstood and criticised by people. And in this past week or so, you've um, been at the forefront of saying we need to remember our veterans a bit more. You you have a very big-hearted attitude to making sure they don't feel that we've forgotten them. Where where did that come from? Well, it's hard to know what makes you who you are, Stephen. (laughs) Your your parents, um, the school, the community environment, the experiences you have... My father was adopted, so I don't know his family history. But on my mother's side, uh, my great-grandfather was a mechanic from Launceston who enlisted straight away for the First World War, was in the 12th Battalion at the landing, survived till October 1915 and then shipped out with severe enteric fever. He would end up in the Australian Flying Corps, one squadron, as a mechanic. He survived the First World War. He had six sons and two daughters all six of those sons, one of them my grandfather, served in the Second World War and the two women in the Women's Land Army. All six of those sons came back, uh, not all in good psychological health. 
And so I, in growing up, I was surrounded with these black and white photographs, uh, the importance of Anzac Day, mm. and not a lot of stories because, as you know, they're very reluctant to talk about what they did. Um, but they had fought in the Middle East, uh, Borneo, New Guinea. Um, one was on HMAS Hobart and so on. Mm. And... But then when I became, when I was a doctor, I did many, many home visits. I ran to emergency medical services in Tasmania and I spent a lot of time in people's homes. Mm. And I noticed in the, then in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, that anyone over the age of 75 had the black and white photographs that I was familiar with from my childhood mm. of young men and women in uniforms looking out at you, in some cases uh, into empty spaces and lives that were not lived from from death in service. Mm. And then when I became Minister for Defence, that really brought into sharp focus for me what's really important in life. And one of the paradox of life is that too often we take for granted the things that are most important to us, whether it's our youth, whether it's our families, and it's living in a society where we enjoy political, economic and religious freedoms. Uh, we live in an Australia where faith coexists with reason, with free academic inquiry, a free press, an independent judiciary. And I realised that I am a beneficiary of this because in no small way of what these men and women do. So... That that's I, I think that's where it comes from. And the other thing is when I was Australia's ambassador to the European Union, I, I addressed the European Parliament on one occasion about the Asia-Pacific. And I said to them, I said, look, do not export your foreign policy into the Asia-Pacific with a headline preoccupation with human rights, rule of law, democracy, all of which we share. Because if that's what you do, you will alienate these countries or you will offend them and you'll fail. Yes. I, said, I said, don't lecture other countries about their values. Yes. But you have to be very clear about your own. And this Australian War Memorial and the stories that we tell has much more to do with the future than it does with the past. We are, in my opinion, Stephen, not just living in a world that's changing, we are moving to a new age. And humankind does not appreciate the scale of the transformation that's in play. And what's most important for us is to never lose sight of who we are, in what we believe, who gave us what we have and made us who we are. And of all of the, the reassuring things I could say to you is about 18 months ago, not unusual to see this, two women wearing full burkas in our first walk galleries with young children. Now, I am not a fan of the burka, but I went up to these two ladies, introduced myself. I said, uh, thank you for coming to the War Memorial. I, I said, where are you from? They said, oh, we're from Auburn in Sydney. We came from Pakistan eight years ago. We're now Australians. So mm. I, I said, well, thank you for coming to the War Memorial. One of them said... I oh, know we love it here. It's our third visit. This is where we learn to be Aussie. Wow. And well, I wished, Stephen, I wished I could have filmed it. And, yeah. and that's what we get every day here. So, as I say, it, it's not actually about war. It's in that yeah. context, but we reveal our character as a people. Yeah. We reveal what's important to us. Well, Brendan, one of the really interesting discussions that's really just rekindled in the last little while, is the question of the frontier wars. Now, many people might not be familiar with that phrase. Uh, that's the name given by some historians to the massacres that took place of Aboriginal people and the reprisals that took place as land was stolen from them by the colonisers. And I know that you believe, because uh, you have a big heart for Aboriginal people, I know that, mm. you believe we need to acknowledge and uh, commemorate those events as well, 
And there's been a suggestion by an historian that that should take place, the War Memorial. Well, look, firstly, uh, Stephen, uh, when the British First Fleet arrived in 1788, hmm. it devastated millennia of rich Aboriginal history, custodianship and culture. Hmm. But from that event and everything that would follow, the origins of the Australia we now are and the people we have become. But what would then happen through the 19th and the early 20th century and the relationship between the first Australians and the Europeans was complex. There was extraordinary beneficence at one end and indisputable violence at the other in the dispossession of Aboriginal people. Yep. But the story, our story is not that of North America. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, before he became Secretary of State, surveyed the United States of what would be the US, and he said it would be built on the involuntary sacrifices of North American Indians, and as such it would be a relationship built on uh, respect and fear. In New Zealand, they fought a war, the Maori Wars, Mm. and the Maoris basically dominated. There was a war. In Australia, there was not a declared war between the colonies and the Aboriginal people. Where the violence was perpetrated, it was perpetrated by uh, mounted um, police units, mounted pastoral units and mounted Aboriginal militia. And it was often seen as a law and order issue. Aboriginal people yeah. would, would kill a cow and then they'd come out and they'd massacre a family. And to shocking, shocking things. This is a story that needs to be told. It has to be told. But the Australian War Memorial is not the place for it to be told. No. The origin and charter and mission of this institution it comes out of Pozier in 1916 of a dying Australian asking Charles Bean, will they remember me in Australia? <laughs> That's right. it, it is about the service of Australians, Aboriginal Australians and non-Aboriginal Australians, mm. in the service of Australia in war and peacekeeping operations. Our mission is not telling stories of violence within Australia. That is the job of the National Museum of Australia. By the way... The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Servicemen, Women and Veterans Association itself is totally opposed to the idea of Mm. a so-called frontier war story at the Australian War Memorial. Mm. And I find often the advocates of this being told here, generally speaking, are not people that understand what this particular place is about. Exactly about, yes. Now, having said all of that... We have been doing extraordinary things to tell the stories of Aboriginal service and sacrifice on behalf of Australia here. And I've also been acquiring significant artworks. Uh, Rover Thomas, the Ruby Plains Massacre 1, Queenie Mackenzie, Horso Creek Killings. We've also acquired the Mistake Creek Killings. In other words, we're acquiring artworks that depict this violence. And the reason for doing so is that when visitors come here they get a sense, hang on, these Aboriginal people went through all of that and then they're enlisting to serve, fight, suffer and die for the young nation that took so much from them. So, you know, we've we've got to unlock the imaginative capacity in people to see the world through, in this case, Aboriginal people. Yes, that's nice. That's really valuable. And and then recognise that when they came back, they were still treated poorly and, in fact, not even citizens. They went to fight when they weren't even citizens. Well, well, of course. They weren't even counted in the census, for goodness sake. 
And and what happened was, you, you know, you imagine this. Four or five generations after the first fleet arrives, with everything they endured, they have to deny their Aboriginality, deny their families, to enlist to fight for the young nation that had taken so much from them. Yeah. Often they're enlisting alongside the sons of those who'd actually committed some of these um, acts of violence against their people. Right. And then they, they, they enlist from desperate inequality... They get into the AIF and they find, for the first time ever, everyone's treated equally. There's no black, there's no white. Everyone's treated equally well and equally badly. And then at the end of the war, they return to desperate inequality and then again to pretty much the same, slightly lesser extent in the Second World War, same story. But we've got a whole range of things we've been doing here to draw their stories out within the framework of equality at this place. Mm. In fact, we, we're currently travelling an exhibition we had here for a year called Four Country, Four Nation, which tells that story. We're about to install a, uh, a, a, a sculptural work which, which, sit in, which people sit in and look at the dome through uh, black-ringed glass oh, wow. uh, designed by an artist called Daniel Boyd. And in front of it, a, a plaza, a precinct, in the centre of which is a fire pit into which is going to be placed soil collected by Aboriginal peoples from their lands. And this will depict the equality of service and sacrifice of Aboriginal people, mm. amongst many other things. Well, I love it. I, yes, I, I love the way you're curating that. And, um, and your careful vision um, mm. for the War Memorial is one that I, I'm very happy to buy into. Thank you for what you're doing. Brendan, you've, you've also this week... Um, been embroiled a little bit in uh, the discussion over letting veterans on planes first. I, um, the moment I saw that, I thought, oh, that's so American. And it, it works in the context of America. You get that. And they single you out at the football or you're sitting in a baseball match and they thank the veterans. And that's part of their culture. I don't think it's our culture, though, is it? Well, it's it's not. And look, I'm not a veteran, obviously, but notwithstanding the flaws and our failings, faults we have. There's not a better country in the world, in my opinion, to be a veteran than Australia. Be between the Department of Veterans Affairs and our non-government uh, organisations, I think we do a pretty good job. And But we're free of all the, the hype and the hoopla of the Americans. And it's not our... You're right, Stephen. It's not our character. It's not our nature to say, uh, other than people that are frail or the elderly and so on, to, to get on a plane first or get at the front of the queue. These men and women give their service, often their good health and then their lives. So we can live in an egalitarian society <laughs> where... Where you know they're, they're they're the last people that say, oh, I want to be at the front of the queue, hmm. and I, 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 as far as Virgin Airlines is concerned, I've had a lot to do with them. I had a lot to do with John Getty. He's one of the finest men I've ever met. Uh, when without, I'm patron of eight charities. I do a lot of things for others as well. Hmm. Whenever we've approached Virgin needing help for somebody or something, without hesitation, they help. Hmm. And I think it's a case of where their good intentions uh, got in front of thinking it through. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know the cynics will be saying, oh, it was a marketing exercise. Look, of course, any company's trying to market itself. But I actually, knowing them, I actually think that they thought they were doing the right thing. And, well, yeah. and, and, and the other thing is, when Tony Abbott became Prime Minister of Australia, he proposed we have an Arlington-style cemetery in Canberra, like yeah. the Americans have. 
And I said to him, look, Tony, we love the Americans. We're free people speaking English in no small way for 300,000 American casualties in the Pacific. But we have a different history. We have different culture. We've got one man buried at the War Memorial. We've got no idea who he is. He's definitely not a general or an admiral. Almost certainly a private, a corporal, sapper, sergeant, junior officer, could be an Aboriginal Australian, but we're Australians. We revere the idealism and the heroism of the everyday Australian. That, that, that's us. That's beautiful. Brendan Nelson is with us. He's the director of the Australian War Memorial. Um, Brendan, what are your plans for the future of the memorial? Things are, things are looking pretty bright for it. Well, our biggest problem, Stephen, which I identified, in fact, within a week of arriving here nearly six years ago, is lack of space. (laughs) And I said I'd I'd come out of Afghanistan. I'd been in Afghanistan a couple of months earlier, and a, a young Australian soldier asked me why... He couldn't show his son what he was doing. And uh, so I had a look, and of course there was almost nothing about recent uh, conflicts. And and the, when I asked the staff, uh, then the senior management, when would we do an Afghanistan exhibition, I was told it would be years. And uh, amongst those reasons was no space and no money. Well, we had a big internal skirmish, and uh, eight months later we opened an Afghanistan exhibition. But... <laughs> We've we've basically, for those familiar with the memorial, our Middle East exhibition, which is more of Afghanistan and also Iraq, is actually in the access corridor to the back of the building. Mm. We've got 42 carved funeral shrouds with the name of our 42 Afghanistan dead on a shelf in the exit corridor on the way to the shop. We've used every uh, storage space, uh, staff space, everything we can do And so I realised our obligation to the future, especially to tell the stories of the last 30 years in our peacekeeping operations, East Timor, Solomon Islands, Rwanda, Somalia and Cambodia in particular, Afghanistan and Iraq, requires more space. We've spent billions of dollars sending these men and women away in our name. In fact, 90,000 veterans we've created over the last 20 years. And now I have said to the government, which it has accepted, strongly supported by Bill Short and the opposition, is that we have an obligation, a responsibility, no less than paying for sending them away, to pay to tell their stories. Yes. So we will increase our exhibition space here over the next 10 years by just over 80%. And it's not about bringing more things out of the storage facility from the First World War or the Second World War. It's almost all about what has been happening in the last 30 years. They need to know their stories are being told and they need to be told now, not years or decades after they've given their service. That's very interesting. Well, Brendan, one of the, you've been doing some beautiful things to, for the uh, 100th anniversary, which is today, uh, as we've been saying, and, and no more beautiful, I think, than the poppies. That, they've been extraordinary. Just an, um, if people have not seen them, I think you're dismounting the exhibition uh, next week, aren't you? We will start tomorrow, and uh, we've already pre-sold 25,000 of these poppies with all of the proceeds going to Legacy. And uh, what happened was two remarkable women, Lynn Berry and Margaret Knight from Mm. Melbourne, uh, in 2014 had an ambition to get 5,000 poppies knitted to honour their respective fathers who served in the Second World War. And uh, little did they realise what they were actually opening up. And so they created that poppy display for Federation Square for Anzac Day in 2015 in Melbourne. 
And then in 2016, my wife and I were in London and went to the Chelsea Flower Show to see the poppy display at the Chelsea Hospital. And then my wife and I actually helped them dismantle it. And I said to Lynn Berry at the time, I said, I would love to see the poppies on the grounds of the Australian War Memorial in the lead up to the centenary of the armistice in 2018. So the end result is that she and 200 volunteers, the professional landscape architect, Philip Johnson, having designed the layout, installed the poppies uh, in the first week of October. They've been on display right throughout October and, of course, up to today, uh, Remembrance Day. It has been overwhelmingly positive. We have a beautiful lightscape goes over them at night, a soundscape uh, composed by Christopher Latham. Which, so some people are visually motivated, some people are orally motivated. My wife and I are opposites in that, well, not opposites exactly, but she loves the visual landscape and she was blown away by this, by the uh, sweep of the poppies, the way they were placed, representing that people sometimes fell in clusters, sometimes they fell alone and so on. And this, But the soundscape just blew me away. It was extraordinary. It certainly is, and throughout the cycle of it, uh, the bells ring 62,000 times, yeah. uh, representing each death. Yeah. And as you will have seen, Stephen, each poppy is different from the other. Isn't and it? Mm. Some of them are, have got some yellow in them to represent the Aboriginal soldiers, some are white for the nurses, the odd purple one for animals, some have the photograph of a much-loved great-uncle or a button from a tunic, they're all repositories of love and ennobled memory. Well, now Georgina wants to buy some because you're you're selling them. As you said, the money will go to legacy. Yes. Um, you've got you've got quite a few, haven't you? In fact, you told me when we bumped into you, which was very nice, um, about how many you were. You doubted that they would be able to make enough, but they blew you away. Well, when <laughs> we did a little trial of this uh, in late October last year, and uh, that's the the light beam that we projected last night onto the Parliament from the parapet of the memorial, and we had three. 3,000 poppies out at night and one of one of the light towers in. And I asked Lynn Berry, the, the, who with Margaret is the co-driver of this, I said, Lynn, have you got enough knitters? She turned to me and said, Brendan, we've got 50,000 knitters. The end result was that 400,000 poppies came in. And Yeah, and I personally visited some nursing homes to collect them and we had a small army of women, they were all women, uh, here in Canberra at Poppies, our, our cafe restaurant. They used to meet every Thursday and they'd painstakingly knit the poppies onto the sticks with the green knitted sleeves. A, a, a labour of love and, and therein, of course, is one of the key lessons. It's not just the outcome, it's the process, it's... It's these people volunteering their time and their love to create this. So people who want to buy them will be able to go to the War Memorial website? Correct. And then you've also got uh, this After the War uh, album, sound album that you've produced. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, look, the biggest selling album in 2015 in Australia was The Spirit of the Anzacs, which was driven by uh, Lee Kernigan uh, and also Garth Porter, who is ex-Sherbert and who had written, produced Lee's stuff for 20, 25 years. So I suggested to them late last year that the Invictus Games would be coming and the Centenary of the Armistice, and perhaps there was another album in this. So they started coming to the memorial. Uh, again, I gave them letters and diaries, gave them ideas. And in March this year, they said, look, Brendan, if you can raise the money to produce the album, 
we and the artists will donate all of the royalties to the War Memorial for your programs for young veterans. And I said, okay. So I raised the money. So we've released this album called After the War. And, of course, you can buy it on CD from a CD retailer or you can go to iTunes and download it. If you get the CD, of course, you get the beautiful booklet that goes with it. But it's called After the War, uh, which also uh, bookends an exhibition we opened here uh, in early October called After the War, which explores the personal and the social consequences, what mm. happens when war ends. Mm. So the, the, the song, and if you uh, Google this when you finish the listening to the program, if you Google <laughs> After the War, uh, you'll get Wes Carr and Eliz- Corporal Elizabeth Smith singing this duet, After the War, Will You Still Know Who I Am?, and look at the video that we produced for it. There's also a magnificent rendition of the song O Passchendaele by the Royal Australian Navy Band. Uh, Another one which Lee Koenigan did was uh, when Matthew Locke was SAS uh, sergeant was killed in Afghanistan. A few months earlier, his then 13-year-old son Keegan wrote a poem about his father called Hero. And Lee Koenigan, with the blessing of the family, has turned it into a song. There's also a magnificent uh, rendition of Waltzing Matilda, slow rendition, with a song written by Tom Waits called Tom Trawbert's Blues, which Lee Koenigan and John Schumann do so beautifully together. John Schumann, of course, I was only 19. Yeah, that's right. And they performed it today, of course, as you know, at the commemorative service here at the Australian War Memorial. And then there's Lee Koenigan's uh, Invictus Anthem. And if you haven't seen the video of that, get yourself a box of tissues and Google that and have a look at it. And then we've got a whole <laughs> whole range of other songs which have been written specifically for the album and uh, also a, a beautiful song called Say a Prayer uh, by Fred Smith. And this is a beautiful song about a young man who marries the love of his life, Marianne, in 1942, and then he's killed on HMAS Canberra at Savo Island. So then there's a lot more on the album, and there's a very upbeat song, by the way, about women in the military who earn their medals and wear them on the left. <laughs> very good news. Well, Brendan, it's just been delightful chatting to you. I wish we could talk much longer. But I just, once again, just thank you for the way you're very careful about this delicate balance but the war memorial is an extraordinary place uh, made more, more ornate by your adornment of it um, so thank you for what you do it's it's a it's an honor to do it Stephen. thank you very much director of the australian war memorial dr brendan nelson discover more open house podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au